Welcome to episode three of the Second Breakfast podcast. In today's episode, I talked to Sherry Spellick, who is an educator, a PE teacher, a coach, a former middle distance runner, an expat, a writer, the author of the book Care at the Core, which explores ideas around digital identity and power. But I think you'll be able to quickly gauge from our conversation that Sherry is also a dear friend. Before we launch into that conversation, which she and I recorded in December, I just want to restate the goals of the podcast here at the outset, at least, right? Episode three. I want to use this platform as a way to reconnect with some of the various teachers and coaches and instructional designers that I knew from my old life, the one where I wrote about education technology. But I want to, I want to shift the discussion from teaching and learning and thinking with technology and this way in which so many people talk about these as utterly disembodied activities. I want to shift this towards conversations about embodied learning, about learning about our bodies as we age, and (laughs) how Silicon Valley tries to tell us that we need to optimize this, just like somehow we need to optimize what happens in the classroom. I want to talk about physical activity and technology and about what we learned about our bodies during the pandemic in particular. I talk a lot in my work about how Silicon Valley ideology wants us to forget the past, the distant past and the recent past. And I see very few people actually hashing out what the fuck we all just went through as educators, as students, as parents, as as human friggin' beings with bodies, right? I knew I wanted to talk to Sherry when I launched Second Breakfast, in part because she's a person who I, I knew could help me think through through all of this and would do so with such care and ferocity. Um, She's a great listener as well. I first met Sherry via Twitter and we started our conversation talking about what relationships professional and personal look like now that social media is, I guess, sort of over. And from there, we talk about the social aspects of sports, how we learn about aging bodies, maybe from our parents, Uh, what running means to us, how PE shapes our understanding of bodies, and how Sherry approaches this as a progressive educator, which I think is really just amazing. And before I go, if you're interested in these sort of conversations, please do send me ideas about who you think I should talk to next. Maybe it's you. Right. Please consider to becoming a paid subscriber to Second Breakfast as your financial support helps me continue this work, obviously. But for our purposes here, it enables me to pay my guests, which matters a lot to me. So without further ado. Having left Twitter and also left EdTech, it's interesting to figure out what exactly I want socially from people who are who I realize now aren't friends that are professional acquaintances and who are actually friends. You know what I mean? So people who are like, Oh, we were, you know, we were working in the same space, but we weren't actually friend friends. And then people who I consider friend friends. Yeah. Oh, I, I definitely, that, that makes so much sense to me. And I think that's always, for me, that's a ongoing process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then figuring out, <laughs> you know, like I'm interested in knowing what my friends are up to. Um, but it's okay if I don't know what professional acquaintances from the world of education technology are doing. <laughs> yeah. Because we're not friends. And right. that's okay. Right. That's yeah. yes. <laughs> and your friends will find you. Totally. Totally. Yeah. That's. That I think that's really key. I think that's maybe been the thing that I've helped that's helped me sort of like just like not be too pressed is knowing, okay, well, I know I have the email addresses of the people I need or the or whatever contact information I need. I can find them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm signed up for this group class that the New York Roadrunners um do and it's speed work. Mm-hmm. And it veritably kicks my ass but it's the first time I've done anything the any group class like this so that's interesting it's any kind of group physical activity setting is still super intimidating for me yes 
and and still, but you 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 you've gone, and I've gone, and you've done. And it. It's fine. Yeah, and it's 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 not it's not the same as as PE as a child, but there's still that sort of that weird lingering effects mm-hmm. of you know of some of those experiences that make it um make it strange yeah and then of course being older right so yes being the older athlete yes that so good on you for going because i i have to admit like that's not something i necessarily would sign up for i'd be like Yeah, I definitely, the, the group thing in running for me as, was always fraught. So I. It is fraught. I mean, I had like, so I have done some group runs that were more training for half marathons. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of different because everyone was doing their long run together. Right. Slowly. You do your run, <laughs> run slowly and you can have a nice little chit chat. Um, with the people that run at your same space, but mm-hmm. this is a speed class, <laughs> so it isn't conducive to chit chat. And also, there's something about running quickly that again triggers all of these memories of of childhood that I find just intensely traumatic. Yeah, I mean, if you're signing up for speed work, then the point is to be fast, faster, fastest, but yes. like, that's it. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And they told me well, on the first day of class, I showed up and they said, you're in group one, the fast group. And I was like, the fuck I am. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Where did that come from? I mean, what, what information was that based on? So it's, so because the New York Roadrunners manage so many of the races in the city, including the marathon, they, mm-hmm. and they keep track of your pace in order to place you in the corral groups. Mm-hmm. And I did very well at the Staten Island half marathon, mm-hmm. apparently <laughs> well enough to be in group one. Which, um, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, yeah. Again, speed. Speed can be. It, so it depends on so many things, right? So many factors. Like, what's the you know, what are the parameters? Like, how yeah. far are we going? How many times? And what is the pace? Who is running? Blah 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 blah. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe yeah. Fact, and I think it's right on target. So it's interesting because I, I'm learning again as a new runner and as a new athlete, it's to me, it's like all of this is, is totally new learning material. So it's just a fascinating intellectual exercise, let alone like a physiological exercise. But, you know, but so I'm learning that I am quite good at endurance. So mm-hmm. set me up to run. I can run you know, I can run pretty quickly for a long time, make me run sprints, like 400 meter repeats. And I want to die. Yeah. Yeah. That makes <laughs> sense. And that, that's a, that's a logical thing. I mean, that I, as someone who, who, who came from the sprints to middle distance and then long distance, um, you know, getting back to the track was always sort of like, Oh, Oh, great. Okay, good. I got this. Um, and having and and the beauty of of course having endurance training, and then doing the speed work was always like, oh, let's go, all right, like that was just such a always a a kind of up, I want to say a bit of a joy, even if I knew like, oh, this is going to be hard, but I knew that 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 I had speed was just there, that I had it. Um, so I I can appreciate not having that background and having to sort of like. You, I mean, just, it's hard. It is hard because also the way that you have to move your legs, the, I mean, 
good sprinting, successful sprinting is very much connected to technique. And we don't talk about that, mm-hmm. but it is, it is technical. You know, the way that you have to raise your knees and your footfall and all of that is completely different from your long, your long run. And so yeah. being able, learning to do that is important because it does improve your overall running capacity for sure. Yeah. And I think to me, it's also learning what your body can do. I, I, for, I, I know for I've had a story my whole life based, in fact, based probably on some of the early, you know, early elementary school experiences I had in PE class. I had a story that I couldn't do any of this. Mm-hmm. And so to figure out how, how fast can I run? is really um new and and interesting because mentally I'm like I don't know I don't I don't I don't think I can I don't think I can um but I can um and and so learning that and being in this being, being in the group one um in particular I you know I get home and I look how fast I ran and I was like damn I that that's fast Yes. Yes. And that's, I mean, for me, that's the beauty of, of running. I mean, I think when I, when I started Mm -hmm. long distance running, the thing that kept me in it was, was the curiosity. I also wanted to know, well, where could I take this? Because I, of course I ran in high school. I ran for two years in college. um, And it wasn't until later. And I want to say, I mean, I started doing road races maybe in the, oh, I don't know, in the late eighties, early nineties. And then, but only after my older son was born, that's when I started marathon training. And I was sort of like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Okay. I thought, I mean, when I ran my first marathon, James was almost one. And wow. And marathon training was the thing my husband had at the time was also a marathon enthusiast. And when I said, Hey, you know, I think I might like to try it. He was like, yeah, you should do that. He fully endorsed it. So once I discovered that I had grounds to be away from home for up to two to two and a half hours by myself doing something for me, that was also physical. I was like, Hey, this is okay. So I, that was, that was the great discovery of, of long distance training was like, Oh, not just what can my body do, but Oh my gosh, this is great. I am by myself. I am free. (laughs) And then, but then having to to like still do the mommy thing when I came back. Right. Like, Oh, all right. Okay. Now I'm ready for you. Okay. So yeah, that was I. It's, there are so few spaces, activities like that for women. You know, I think, I mean, it, it, physical activities, men get to do these kinds of things like, you know, playing, playing golf, the, the, the gone all friggin' day. Yeah. It's so interesting to recognize that it is really precious precious time. I think it's one of the reasons why you see the proliferation of runners who are our age, who are, who are like, wow, I, I have time now. I never had time to, to sort of do, you know, a two and a half hour activity for myself. Mm -hmm. Who has that time as a, as a mom, as a working mom, as a younger person? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that, that for me was so utterly eye-opening. And again, I learned about what I could do by myself for myself because I didn't work with a coach. I mean, I, of course I knew some things about distance running generally, but this whole marathon thing. And then I got in the marathon and it was like, it was a natural. It was one of my, one of my best marathons. The first one was just sort of like, oh, and I felt great. And I think it was just the fact that it was this freedom this this absolute joy of this is time for myself and I am going to savor every minute of it. 
Yeah. I couldn't, if I, and I wouldn't run, try to run a marathon anymore because my knees are done. Um, but that's also due to a fairly long career of running. So if you're just sort of beginning, then I think, man, you've got, you've got some time. You, <laughs> you can do some I, stuff. This is true. This is true. I, being a non-athlete for 50 years, I have no, I have no old injuries to worry about. It's it's huge. It's funny. I again, I I when yeah. I think about it, because I think I kind of retired at thirty. Let me think. Like thirty five, thirty six, something like that. Where I finally said, okay, it's my last indoor championships. Austrian indoor 800 meters. Okay. I ran it, had a couple of friends come and clap. Yay. 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 Okay. It came in third. Of course there were like, like maybe five entrants. Okay. So it's not like <laughs> anyway, but I, I remember doing that, you know, and then my friends gave me like uh, spikes to hang up on the hook. Like, okay, I'm done with all that. Awesome. Yeah. And that was a great way to just sort of say, excellent. And so, you know, by the time, I, by the time 40 rolled around, I was um, trying to, um, I was thinking about like, who am I if I'm not a runner? Because that's how people knew me. People knew I was the runner. Oh, are you still running? Every time the marathon came up, oh, are you running the marathon? I'm like, no, no, no. Um, but that was the identity. That, that was the thing that people associated with me. And when I decided, no, I am not doing that, I thought, well, what, what am I doing? What am I doing that's not running? Yeah. And then it slowly, it took some time. I think it was a bunch, it was a number of different things, but it was that question of how am I using my time? What do I want to use my time and energy for? Yeah. So, it's, yeah. it's, it's so fascinating generationally um, what the expectations are for aging bodies. It's really interesting to see how, how some of this is, is shifting. And, you know, I think on one hand we have, I think it's interesting because we're, you know, we're roughly the same age as Elon Musk and Mark Andreessen and all of these Gen X technologists. Yeah, I've never seem to be panic stricken. Yeah. They're, they're panic stricken about aging. And then I think, you know, so what's the narrative that we're going to see around tech? Um, but then what are these other things happening um that might be a different, a different story about what's happening to our bodies. And I, and I think it's, I think we're shifting, starting to shift a little with the conversations about um, aging women and athleticism, which is fascinating to me. I, I, I'm sure that's true. And, and I think I feel it's interesting as a black woman who has watched, yeah. you know, have, I've seen my elders age and the way in which um, you know, it wasn't necessarily associated with physical activity, but just the way in which, you know, my mother, um, you know, stayed fit in, in her own way, right. Just doing, just running around the city, you know, from this meeting to this meeting to that and, and being involved mm -hmm. with the church and on this board and that board. So she was, she was active, um, doing a number of mm -hmm. things, but it wasn't necessarily physical activity. She would get in the car, drive here, go there, got to see this. Um, and of course, supporting us as kids, right. Making sure that we got to do the things that we wanted to do. Right. So that I got to do sports and that my brother did sports and, and that we got to attend the colleges of our choice and so on. Um, but watching my, my parents and their friends age and, and somehow, and do that relatively with well, without like significant, you know, illness, injury. Um, so it didn't, so I wasn't, I've just never been that troubled about aging just because I've had those models. Yeah. And also I have a sister who is considerably older and she um, is not someone who is, who she's again, similar to my mother, socially active, um, but not necessarily physically active, um, but she looks great. Like she's just the way that, you know, um, and so I also look at her and think, that's right. It's possible for us to age and to be active in our own ways 
and to also be relatively healthy. Yes. I think that that's, I think that that's so true. And that, you know, I, I, that's why I think it's like this interesting, you know, this, this interesting thing that how these conversations um, get started, like in, in the discourse, like, well, even what we think about, you know, retirement, right? The, the, the whole notion of retirement is a very recent concept mm-hmm. for a very small number of people, right? right? And so what does quote unquote re- retirement look like? It's something that I think maybe I don't even like would be like two gener two generation three three at most generations ago. My great grandmother wouldn't have had a notion of retirement. Not you know not sort of this whole social security. You don't have to be active. You don't have to be active anymore. Yes. Kind of narrative. And I think again, very different for for white women than it would be for, for black people at large and black women. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. Something that, that I, I think about because my father, um, I think in a lot of ways I have the body and the physique of my father. So if I look at my arms and, and, and the way that my legs are shaped, I, I realize that's, that's from my dad. And, and yeah. I think about him, he was always a, a very, a slim, muscular guy um, who did carpentry and also worked for the post office um, for most of his working life, um, and and I and I know that actually as a younger man that he was a, an excellent dancer. He and my mom were big dancers, swing and all that, um, because they were you know really World War II generation, right? He he actually served in World War II, um, but I think about that my dad, if he had had the opportunities, I've asked myself, I wonder what kind of athlete he might have been if he hadn't been working his mm-hmm. whole life. Because I definitely yeah. see it in his physique that, yeah, it was all there. And um, I feel like I inherited inherited all of that in a lot of ways. Yeah, my dad, I feel like I also genetically um, have look more like the women on my dad's side of the family than on my mom's side of the family. And my dad had a, a terrible injury in community college um, in PE class. He broke his leg and very severely. And it was what kept him out of Vietnam. Uh Um, It was, uh, it was such a traumatic um, break. And uh, I think it's interesting thinking about the ways in which we inherit both sort of, you know, the genetics, but then also what are the, what are the other repercussions of how we think about our bodies, you know, and our body's potential. Um, And so my dad, my dad never had any kind of physical therapy. He had, you know, he had a bunch of surgery, had pins and plates in -hmm. his femur, huge scar absolutely no muscle left in his leg was always in a great deal of pain. Um, and, and, and he didn't serve whereas all of his other friends went and many, many of them died in Vietnam and he always felt terrible. So, Mm. you know, like his physical movement wasn't something that was ever prioritized from him because he couldn't. Right. Um, And so, you know, so not just genetically did I inherit, you know, my dad's body, but also his story around PE being like, maybe not, <laughs> maybe this weird thing where bad shit happens. Where we just carry these things, carry these things forward. Yeah. In our bones. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause I also think about also that, and I look at my own sons who are both, uh, very athletically built and each in their own ways have pursued different types of sports. So, so my oldest is, will be 30 soon. And, uh, the younger, the, my younger son is 16. So both of them are, are athletic, have been athletic in, in various ways and pursued sports. But, uh, my older son, 
definitely was not so keen on competition. Mm -hmm. So he was athletic. He didn't love the whole competition thing. So judo, yeah, okay, let's practice it. But no, I don't really need to get into this circle where people are going to watch me win or lose. That was not his thing. Um, And and I think similar was true for track. He was incredibly quick, (laughs) but then also realized, no, it just makes him, it just the head game of, of getting in the blocks and, and having to perform, uh, under the gun, literally, um, just he, that wasn't his. And so that's, you know, so that's not what he did. Uh, and my younger son, uh, did other things, but he can do the competitive thing. I think still likes track, but that's not his driving force motive. He's not, you know, planning out his, the rest of his, you know, uh, high school career around what his athletic potential might be. Although he could, I suppose, if he, if he chose a thing and decided to stick with it, but that's not what his, that's not his interest. Yeah. It's so interesting because like, I think some of this is so gendered too. So for me, I, I think it's again, age. I, I mean, I was just never pressured to do any kind of sports. My little brother, on the other hand, I think it was much something that was, culturally more expected for him to do. Plus he wanted to go into the military, you know, fam, you know, family history. Um, he wanted to go into the military. And so he felt more obligated to sort of have a sport. How can you uh, cultivate a love of movement in kids when we place so much value on competition? I mean, the same can be said for academia, right? This isn't right. competition right. is not something that just happens in gym class, but yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um, What's interesting is that as long as I've been teaching PE, which is now like almost, I think, 28 years, um, shocker, um, I, I have never felt like, I've never been interested in cultivating competition in class. Although kids bring it, like kids, kids, there are certain children who have that natural inclination. They want to compete. They want to win. They also want to be first in line and a whole series of things like those, those are, those are just in, right. Those are some children have that natural impulse. Um, What I've learned um, is that it's possible to create experiences that allow kids to play a game or engage in an activity where those who kind of want to compete can have some of it, but maybe not all of it, but they get to show what they can do. So for instance, someone who is very competitive, if we play tag, that's a a continuous game, that's no elimination, um, that that involves a lot of running and, and it's really just, oh, get away from the tagger and then also free other people by, you know, crawling under their legs or uh, doing something else, right? Um, if you have that kind of game going on, that um, the kids who are competitive and, and really fast, for instance, that they learn, oh, okay, I want to be the tagger. Or they say, no, no, I don't want to be the t- t- tagger. I just want to be, I want to dodge. I want to avoid being tagged and show how mm-hmm. quick and, and uh, uh, agile I am. But also those same children that you have to remind that they, they, they soon realize that unless they save other people, the game will be dead. <laughs> and so that they have to do all of the things in order to keep the game going. So if they want the game, they can be quick they can be fast, but they also have to save other people who have gotten tagged or else the game can't continue. And so I think there are lots of, of opportunities in, in PE to offer students what they're, you can, you can cater to their needs, but you can, you can also shape the parameters, which, uh, help them engage in the areas where they might not otherwise be inclined to maybe offer their best effort. This is what I love about play, right? I mean, just in general, play, play is a a time in which I think as a child, you do learn about rules and the negotiation of rules and um like common commonalities and advocacy negotiation um that i think that 
I think that once you at once play tips over into like competition, it that there's less room for there's less room for creativity and there's less room for you know that that kind of communal piece. Often, it's not always. It's it, no, it's absolutely true. And what's interesting for me because I teach uh, four year olds up to ten or eleven year olds. Um, and so I get to see this this developmental spectrum about how kids choose to engage. Um, and and what's interesting is to notice um, how important the negotiation of rules uh, are and how how we how kids are they are sticklers. They, yes. It's amazing to me. Like we will talk about like you know playing a game that I think we is familiar. We have played it many times before and still, and I'll say, okay, questions and the number of questions that are really about rule clarification, where we want to clarify no puppy guarding. Okay. Well, okay. What's, and then we clarify what puppy guarding is, right? You can't be close to somebody who has just been, you can't tag someone who is just getting up or is freeing someone, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, But then they'll ask, you know, okay, if there's, if I, if someone throws the ball and I catch it, am I down or, or do they go down? You know, like they, they want to know the details and the way in which they think of all the, the number of eventualities, the possibilities. It is phenomenal. And their thinking is, is really, yeah. it's rich. These, so I always think about like, even when I get a little frustrated, like, come on friends, like, like let's get on with the game. But that phase of, of questioning, of negotiating the rules, of clarifying that this is an important cognitive step that, again, that enhances the game, right? Because again, we're based, this is the assumption is that we, we have an agreement about what's going to happen in the game and what it should look like if everyone is adhering to the rules that we've just discussed. Now, of course, uh, puppy guarding comes from being tired. If you're the tagger and you can't tag people, then you are going to go for the easy, the low hanging fruit that's yeah. right there. Right. And then that's another point for us to, to discuss. So, um, so all of that is happening and then really nobody has time for the competition piece. <laughs> yeah. That's, I love that. I love that. I love that sort of that working out, you know, that working out uh, of the kids do of, what's negotiable, what's not negotiable. Because we know even, you know, even other games that we play where you're given, you know, like in board games where there's quite literally someone has printed out what the rules are of whatever it is, Monopoly, Uno. Like we all know, even those are like, we all have house rules, you know? So you do know that like some of this stuff is when we play it, (laughs) <laughs> you know, we have, you know, we have, there's, there are these other, like, you know, other things that, that get allowed or, or disallowed. So I love, I love that having to work out exactly what the context is. I mean, and what great lessons, what great lessons for life. And then, you know, I think the way in which it's embodied, it's embodied thought. So. Yes. I mean, they have that practice. And, and again, watching that process evolve over time with, you know, the way that 11 year olds, you know, the way that my fifth graders want to talk about a game and also the, the type of games that they're playing by the time they get to fifth grade, then, then maybe, then we probably are going to play uh, small sided games that involve may mm-hmm. involve score. I have never interested in the score. They, some kids are very interested in the score. So if they want to keep score, okay, then you all knock yourselves out. But uh, I am not concerned. I, that's a choice that you can yeah. make within your small sided game. So if you're playing four on four and you decide you want to keep score, you can do that. But if this group over here of, of four and four, if they just want to play the game and, and not keep score, they can do that as well. And, um, but but as as kids get older, their capacity to work with rules, but also to understand the skill building piece that goes into making a game. 
So for instance, if I want to play, if, if I want my students to eventually play a game that involves invasion game tactics, where you need to pass the ball and try to score in the opponent's territory, I need to do that in such a way that everyone feels reasonably comfortable catching the object, whatever it is, if it's a beanbag or if it's a ball um, or if it's something else, that everyone in our whole class needs to feel comfortable that they can catch the thing. Um, and then the next thing is, how, how do you know who to pass it to? How do you decide that? And so we practice all of these steps before we actually play the game game, right? They're, they're lead up games. And that is also a really important piece of PE that I think maybe when we were growing up that we didn't really experience, we just sort of, at least we don't remember experiencing it. If, if it happened, we just remember the game and we lost and it was terrible and, or we were terrible and, and it was just like, we didn't know the rules. Or we didn't know the rules, but only some people knew the rules or some people, only some people got to make the rules. Also, <laughs> but I th- for me, that's a that's a really important piece. The skill building, the skill building that enables really every student that that enables access, right? That creates access to the game. Yes, um, and and that can be a process. And and I think this is another piece that is important, and I think has is certainly more common now in, in, I want to say in modern PE in more recent PE and, and, uh, in the field of this notion of how you create the best conditions for learning for all students that it, that we cannot only cater to the best athletes or, and, and again, that's another thing that's very relative because not everybody is, you know, some people are great at all things, but then really struggle when it comes to gymnastics or come to when it comes yeah. to dance, when it comes to other things. So that's the other piece that is so vital to me is that in the school year, I need to give students s- such a wide range of experiences so that ideally everybody has something where they're like, oh, this is my jam. Okay let's go. Like it's, it's gymnastics now, or it's dance, or it's, we're doing parkour, or we're doing, doing soccer, we're doing, uh, you know, any number of things. But the point is that everyone receives exposure to a variety of different movement uh, opportunities. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that, you know, looking back is I recognize it's a bit like what you were saying is I never, never was, was taught the skills or given the space to get better, right? I think about the things I do now that are about, you know, we use these words like, you know, it's a yoga is a practice, right? Or running, you're doing training. And there is a recognition that you have to work at these things over time to conditioning, right? There's, there's a transformation that happens in your body once you learn to do something. And I don't feel growing up that was, there was ever an expectation that we were going to practice and work on skills. You either were good at it or you sucked at it. And there wasn't ever like a, here, let me break down how to do a layup for you. You know, it was like, oh, can't do the layup. Sucks. You're going to be the last fun pick on the basketball team. That's embarrassing. Nobody, you know, nobody ever said, let's work on it. And if it, if it was, it was like this weird drill thing where it was like, right. shoot, you know, you know, do, do 20 layups. Oh, you should make a single one back of the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say right now, uh, my colleague and I are doing a little bit of a, it's an experiment. It's something new in that normally we've had a, a, a gymnastics unit that everyone would go through. And at the end, the older, the older, our oldest students would produce a short routine, you know, that has to have a certain number of things. So a jump, a turn, a couple of rolls, a couple of weight transfers. Uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. And so last year we came up with this idea. We said, hey, you know, it would be really cool if we offered students a choice that we expose them to, you know, different things. And then they get to choose the thing that they would like to be assessed in. So. Uh, so this year, our fourth and fifth graders, they were all introduced to yoga, gymnastics, and parkour. Uh, 
And um, I know I parkour is not my thing. So my colleague, that's that's something that he really enjoys. Um, and and so we had to work out the system whereby my students who otherwise would not be with him would also be exposed to parkour. So he led that lesson and then I led the lesson for his kids and yoga and so on and so forth. So, so finally we get to, to choice day where kids need to decide what they're doing. And I have one very big class of, of, uh, fifth graders. And, um, I want to tell you that my exposure lesson to yoga did not go well. The gymnastics one was okay. Um, and the parkour one was, was a hit. So when it came time to choose and I said, okay, tell, give me your first and second choice because, you know, it might not work out. We might not have space for everybody to do, you know, if everybody chooses one thing. Well, all of them chose parkour. And my colleague <laughs> said, no, it's okay. He said, it's fine. He said, it's, it's fine. It'll, it'll work out. We'll make it work out. And I said, okay. So I'm in there with him and, and we're, but, and I have to say, because of course I was feeling a little bit hurt. Like really, no one wants yeah. to do gymnastics with me. You all want to be with the other guy, really? Okay, just. That. But I. But the point was also recognizing novelty, right? And some of them had done yeah. parkour with him the the year before, and it it's fascinating to watch kids when they get a choice, when they yes. can choose where they want to practice. And it has been, it's, 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 and it's wonderful. So this, so this program, I mean, it's really, it's quite labor intensive in, in some ways, but the kids, when the kids get to choose, there is just something so powerful about that. Yeah. I, and I feel like to me, that's the great thing about being an adult, right? Is that like, nobody says, I mean, I tell it to people all the time when I see, when I people hear people grumble about activity. I'm like, you have to find, you have to find the thing that, that you like doing. It doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have right. to be swimming. You don't have to do hit classes or, you know, Pilates or, um, bar or whatever the, you know, but you know, you, you do get to make a, a choice, but I think some of us are still in that mode that like, Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's on my schedule. I've got to do, this thing and I hate it. Yes. I, which I honestly, as an adult, I have no idea why, why you would, why, you would, why would you choose that? Why? But again, why? A, a lot I know. Of people associate physical activity with punishment and feel like it yes. should be a form of punishment. Right. So there's, there's this, this Puritan kind of, you know, Protestant totally. work ethic, all that stuff. Right. Um, that people yeah. kind of bring to, the notion of, okay, my physical activity is where I, you know, pay for my sins, whatever. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's weird. It is so weird. Yeah. 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 So you've, so if you've been teaching, so you've been teaching PE for what you said, like 28 years. So I have to ask, then I have to ask like this obvious follow-up question, which is like part of the moral panic we have around kids these days is how do you think that technology has changed their relationship to PE and their relationship to their body? Hmm. That it's, it's a, it's a great question. And somehow I feel somewhat underqualified to speak to that simply because I don't see children. I don't get to see my students really outside of PE, right? I yeah. mean, I may see them on the playground or in the, in the cafeteria, but I rarely see them in their classrooms. I would say the yeah. closest that I came to experiencing them with technology was during the pandemic. Mm. When I was sending, when I was sending video less lessons, not really. Um, I was, I was sending essentially short videos home through a platform um, and then they would respond in some way, you know, they might say, oh, I, you know, they might write or they might share a video back or they might, uh, you know, send a picture, whatever it was. And, and I, I don't know, I think, I think of course our kids are, are engaged with technology. I mean, I look at my own, my own children and particularly yeah. my, my younger son. And of course, I mean, since he's had, uh, I would say the last 
three to four years. So from, from 14 to 16, like the, the, the importance of, of not just his phone, but the, the engagement with social media has been particularly, it's much stronger since he's been in high school. Um, but you know, at the same time, kids needs have not changed dramatically in that when they come to PE, when they come to school, they come to school because that's where the other kids are. That's what's, that is what is bringing children to school. It's not, they're saying, Oh, I can't wait to learn about No, it's because the other kids are at school and that's, what's interesting. End of story. Um, and that they, um, they want to be, they want to see and be seen. They want to feel cared for. They want to feel connected. Um, they want fun. They demand fun. All yeah. of our students demand fun. And that's true for high school, high school through pre-K. They demand fun. And if we don't give it, they will take it. They will create it for themselves yes. because otherwise school is just, you know, too much of a burden. So taken together, I think if we are, if we're really thinking about our students, our students are telling us all the time what they need and what they want. It's a question of how we respond as adults, as educators, how are we responding to those needs? Um, and in a lot of ways, we're, we're, we as educators are being told, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to make sure it happens. Uh, with kids. They need to learn this. They need to be able to produce this result. They need to be able to uh, demonstrate the following, reach these standards. Um, That may all be true. And we and our students are humans who have these fundamental needs and the learning doesn't happen unless those fundamental needs are met, period. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that all rings so true. And I think that what you were saying about fun, I think that, you know, I think that many people confuse that, that insist that, that somehow technology is the fun thing. Mm. And that um, I think that the experiences through the pandemic sort of, I think really showcased how a lot of the things that I think were progressive, interesting, fun, about school were are really actually sort of squelched by a lot of the technology systems. Certainly the ones I think that, that many administrators um, seem to prefer. There's just not a lot of space for the kind of rule negotiating, right. To bring it back. Like it's just, there's no space for rule negotiating. There's no space for like having your own version of, of an app. It's hard coded. This is the rule. There's just one way it works. And it was what was so clear to me during the pandemic is what students were missing were they missed being together. They missed being social. They missed being with other kids. And so one of the things that happened, I remember one, one second grade class during the pandemic on this platform that we had, that they literally started uh, like a, a chain of responses that was like their own social media channel in my class, right? And so in PE, second grade, this group, you know, sort of like, hi, like someone responding to someone else's photo. And then it became, it was amazing. It was the coolest thing because it was, they chose that, that method of engaging. This was them communicating yeah. with each other, finding each other, saying, hey, what's up? What are you doing? Hey, oh, I did my thing all day. What did you do? And I, I loved it because, again, it reminded me that kids have agency. They are, you know, yeah. that they will solve things for themselves if you give them, an, if you give them opportunities to do it. They, because they recognize, hey, I need this. I want to know what my friends are up to. Oh, wait, we can do this over here. And it was just, and these are second graders. Right. So seven year olds, seven and eight year olds. Yeah, I think that so much of so much technology and I obviously I think it's such a reflection of, you know, of where it comes from in Silicon Valley and the kind of very white libertarian ideas that so much of so much of technology is so individualistic. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, even the vision that many entrepreneurs have for the future of school. It's just increasingly individualistic. How do we make sure that each student moves at their own pace, right? 
and really what what we what learning actually looks like what the world looks like is about connecting to one another and that's what le- to me learning is connecting with ideas but connecting with those ideas with other people it's no it's no fun to have some amazing insight if you don't have somebody to bounce it off of and think through it with and i think that the same goes for physical activity i mean it's that it is about how do you how do you figure out these how do you figure out these ideas and these movements in your own body but how do you bring it into the world with and around and for other people um and this so you know how do we how do we recognize what health and movement looks like for all of us not just the sort of just about me the individual my individual choice my individual responsibility oh this is such a absolutely i i absolutely agree and it's interesting to me to think about my approach to physical activity as an adult and how it's changed over time because i come from individual sports so i i ran track in yeah. high school and college and and didn't really i didn't have a great affinity for uh, team sports. Um, so I was accustomed to training on my own and not necessarily being in a group to train. Mm -hmm. Um, however, I will say that some of my fondest memories as a, as a track athlete, as an adult were the times when I was connected to, uh, a club and I had some connections with friends that I was showing up to training with a small group of people, um, that that was, it was somehow the most stimulating, the most, the most interesting, the time that I was the most motivated that I, that I really saw myself able to push beyond what I thought was possible and, and also have the most fun while doing it, while really pushing myself. So I agree with you that social piece is something that we need and it may come in different forms. It doesn't have to be necessarily, it, it will vary from person to person, but I think that some form of connection is probably something that for many of us is built into what we would consider uh, contributing to the enjoyment factor of our physical activity. Yeah. It's one of the things that I have found to be surprising and rather exhilarating about running and particularly doing here in New York in particular, but even, you know, when I lived in Oakland is how many people show up and cheer for races ran, you know, having random strangers on the side of the road, telling, you know, encouraging you, applauding for you, you know, waving the cowbell, (laughs) whatever is amazing, but even just running around the neighborhood, you know, to get a nod from another runner and that kind of encouragement, it does feel as though, even though it is a solitary, a solitary activity, often you do feel as though you're part of something else. And again, you know, back to, back to the sort of experiences of PE that were so off-putting is I just never remember being taught that kind of, um, that kind of, social aspect to physical activity. There was never this idea that we, you know, we made space, we cheered for everybody. We stayed around and made sure we were there when everybody crossed the finish line. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we, we applauded effort and not just winning. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are things that, that those are such key experiences. And, and again, those experiences shape us. And one yeah. of the things that I've I've done in in previous talks, particularly with with regard to PE, is I've asked people to reflect on their early PE experiences, and then so many adults have had really miserable experiences, and the things that they remember from uh, their their early experiences with PE were often extremely negative, um, and yeah. and that always you know, it makes me sad. And I and I hope that that uh, you know the next generation it will not have such a, a negative uh, frame for uh, their experiences. But it's something that I I hope the field uh, has gotten much better about recognizing how we what what an impact we have, what a tremendous impact yeah. we have 
and that we can we can do it we can do it in a way that's so much better for everybody really we can yeah we do i hope many i think I, many of my songs are doing that yeah i i i think that things have shifted substantially of course i mean you're you're in austria and i don't know what the what um what the sort of politics of education are for you but you know here in the us as you know like of course pe pe and art and music are things that we've decided are unnecessary because we have to focus so much on the standardized testing. So these op- these opportunities and these opportunities for fun, but these opportunities to sort of, my friend Gary Sager always talks about, you know, kids don't actually get to experience excellence, right? They don't get to know and they don't get to know what they don't know. And these are, those classes in particular are moments where you can sort of show opportunity and uh, and things outside their day-to-day life um, that they don't norm wouldn't normally be exposed to. And so of course, those are the things on the chopping block that we have to get rid of. We have to get rid of play and we have to get rid of ex- excellence. And I think that, you know, music, um, music and sports are, are an incredibly powerful place for excellence. And yet, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, I see. And, and also the, the thing that's happened is, that the time for PE and other specials is reduced. So if it's still there, it's reduced. Mm -hmm. And for instance, for PE, oh, but then we also expect you to combat obesity in the 45 minutes a week that you will see the 40 children at a time uh, and what, right? And so it's just been, I mean, the conditions I think in in many parts of, of the United States and I realize there there's a huge you know range of of experiences, but certainly that that PE has really had to continues to have to fight for its life um, in a lot of different yeah. systems. Um, and then what con- what constitutes uh, a PE life in some places is really really difficult um, to to sustain and actually cultivate the things that we're talking about. And yet mm-hmm. there are educators who are trying to do that even under those circumstances. So, um, but, and, and I will say in Austria, I mean, I work in an, in an international school, so it's a, a, a private, very fairly, you know, elite, uh, context, um, and in public in Austrian public schools, then it, it does look different in terms of how PE is handled at the elementary level. And then at the secondary levels. Um, yeah. Yeah. So before we go, I do have to ask, the obligatory question, which is what's for breakfast? Um, I thought about this question when I was making breakfast this morning. And I think it used to be, uh, it used to be, I had a, a, a plan. Like I usually did like plain yogurt with um, apples. Sometimes I would add raisins, walnuts, and apricots and eat that. Mm. Okay, great. Mm, lovely. Um, but more recently, this is a little bit influenced by my teen, who really needs a lot more protein, who, who really is saying, I need protein, I need protein. And so he's very big into eggs. And so um, actually we, I made the Dutch baby uh, not too long ago. Um, yes, oh, thanks yeah. to your recipe. Um, and, and so I've been eating, I've been actually eating scrambled eggs and scrambled eggs sometimes with ham. And that's so very unusual for me. But so I'm wondering if this is maybe a new phase, a new thing about middle age that that is surfacing about me. (laughs) Actually, yeah, I'm finding something very similar, which is I used to be like a big sort of carb person. Fine. Send me out the door with some fruit and toast. And I'm also gravitating towards more of a savory. And also, I think it's odd. I really also am feeling a little bit more inclined towards warm something in the morning. Like the, the yogurt and stuff was fine. Maybe that's fine for the summer, but now that it's we're in the the cooler temperatures, I really I want something warm and cozy before I start my day. Yeah. Sometimes, so. I know, I know. It's like, can, is, can we make breakfast soup a thing? <laughs> I guess that's oatmeal, right? <laughs> but I'm like, I don't want oatmeal. I want breakfast what? soup. Yeah, but a breakfast soup—that's well, something to think about. I think that that feels like that could be like a whole new, a whole niche, like you know, breakfast soup. Mm. Oh, Sherry, it's been so great to chat with you.
Thank you, thank you, thank you, Sherry. Um, You can find more about Sherry, read her work, contact her for coaching or speaking engagements via her website, edifiedlistener.blog. Thank you for listening to the Second Breakfast Podcast, and we'll talk next month.